Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. Today, I'm joined by Martin, uh, one of the programmers who's working on Silvernode, which is a Handmade Network project um, that is uh, all about editing raw photo files for photographers. And I'm not a photographer, um, so I'm hoping to talk to Martin here uh, about what that process looks like, what uh, details about the program, uh, the development philosophy, and uh, whatever we get into. So, hello, Martin. Hello, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me to the show. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Been looking forward to it. I'm excited. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, Silvernode is super impressive for anybody who hasn't like checked it out. Uh, go to silvernode.io or silvernode.handmade.network. Yeah, check out all the information. Check out the devlogs. Uh, it's really, really impressive stuff. Um, so I wanted to just start talking about Silvernode by asking about uh, like when, when you look at usage of the program, it seems like it's very designed to provide useful tools that are um, like not found elsewhere, but seem like they are the kind of thing that you would want if you're a photographer. I'm not a photographer. Uh, so um, I'm assuming like, I think at, at some point during the devlogs, you mentioned that you're a photographer. Um, yeah, that's right. Was this project all about trying to develop a tool that helps you personally? Like, were you just so fed up with like the existing state of tools? Yeah, for, yeah, for this exactly. Work? That was, that was exactly what was, what was happening at the time when I started this project. Um, so I was, okay. I was programming, uh, for already quite some time. And then I picked up photography as an additional, uh, hobby. And okay. basically I was in, in university and I shot pictures at parties and then like the, the, the processing time of, of like editing the photos after a party took so long that I ended up <laughs> editing in class all the time, um, oh, on my, on my wow. laptop and Basically, like the the application I was using was so slow that um, and was so like I want to say badly written in terms of hardware wise that uh, the mm. clock speed went down because of thermal throttling of my processor. So like the wow. first two minutes of editing photos was quite okay in terms of speed, and then uh, like two minutes later, the the thermal throttling kicked in everything went slow and you had to like click sliders and then wait for the for the results <laughs> to appear on screen wow. that was that was really bad in terms of experience and then i was yeah. in i was in class so i was in university and we were seeing everything about like color science that was in the program mm -hmm. and then i started thinking like wait this this math seems quite straightforward why does it take so long in this application that i'm using yeah and then i went home um actually asked the question about is like are we missing some important details here for some reason that makes a real life application slower than than what is yeah. presented here and i like basically the message was no this is this is the the essence of it and i was thinking like this should be fast on my computer like my computer is good enough that this should wow. be fast so i went home and yeah and then started like a very simple proof of concept that had like no interface at all. It was just uh, one photo loaded into GPU memory and then like a shader running at, at 60, 70, 80 frames per second on that photo right. rendering it. And I was like, okay, this is the basis. This is the fundamental starting point. I've proven that right. it can be fast. So let's start here. That's that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, because when I see usage of Silvernode, it's like pretty instant. Like, I, um, 
obviously like you're having to load in like tons of pictures at a time but when you're just looking at a single picture even it's just applying transformations to that image are like instant and there's no reason why like in my head there's no reason why there shouldn't be i mean we run the most ridiculous kinds of games on our machines and they run yep. like very well and you would think like just applying a transformation presumably that can be done massively in parallel which um i guess is why you're doing it on the gpu um, yeah, I think I think that the reason that some software is slow in that regard is that mm-hmm. the the people developing this uh, start with some like academic research. They they go through literature, what kind of effects uh, are available here, and then and then they start gluing together the effects that they picked out um, without actually like thinking very thoroughly on how to efficiently combine them and if that is actually the kind of algorithm you want to use for this purpose like it's Mm -hmm. just a combination of throwing together very good algorithms in terms of outcome good but not maybe not performance good interesting okay and and that's where i want to make the difference like i want to also i'm also going through literature and trying to find algorithms that make sense um but algorithms that i can think of being implemented in a very very efficient way and like that's a that's an additional criterion that i'm i'm using while selecting or picking algorithms right that's pretty interesting so the the reason why i bring up like the gpu it's it seems like image processing every change to every pixel is like in my in my mental model of the problem like um maybe this is totally off but uh each pixel is going to be affected like presumably there are some like stats that you have to calculate on the image and stuff, mm-hmm. but past that point, every change has to occur uh, independently of other pixels, obviously, because it's all going to a separate location. Um, well, yeah, on the actual photo, you could you could classify uh, effects in like two categories. I would say like the effects okay. that are completely per pixel, like isolated, and then the effects that require yeah. a bit of context around the pixel. Um, interesting and okay. and a lot of these context aware algorithms are very slow because like immediately if yeah. you need 10 20 pixels of surrounding a square of 20 by 20 pixels around the current pixel that really kills the performance on a gpu so and then it's right. and then it's the matter of selecting an algorithm that doesn't need that much context or or has interesting workarounds to make it faster and like because right now the the state of Silvernote, how I have it today, is in such a way mm-hmm. that everything that is happening on screen while you're fiddling with sliders is being re how do you say this um, redesigned such that it now is a per pixel effect. So like the context has oh. been transformed and been pre-computed. And stored in such a way that it everything is a per pixel effect on the GPU. So, and that is oh, one of the reasons why it's so fast today. That's pretty interesting. So, you've done some kind of transformation on the algorithm itself that presumably like pipelines several stages of doing like this kind of contextually aware pixel operation, um, basically so that you can just do a bunch of steps in this pipeline to eventually arrive at like where each step is kind of just like a per pixel thing. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yep. Um, is that is that really what the 
process looks like? Like pipelining these things up, doing one little step at a time? Or what, what is the approach to making that more parallel uh, look? The, um, one of the algorithms that, well, let me think. I think currently the only algorithm that I have implemented mm-hmm. that is such a context-aware effect uh, mm-hmm. is is being like te- technically supported by a SIGGRAPH paper from 2007 and it's called like image processing using the bilateral grid or something and the bilateral mm-hmm. grid is a a very elegant data structure that allows you to like extract the context of a pixel and like put it in uh, in that data structure in such a way that it is a single read from that uh, data structure once you're processing the pixel. So and the and and the preparation mm. of this data structure uh, happens on the CPU side and is also relatively fast. It is it's of course not as fast as like a 60 frames per second thing, but you only need to compute right. it once, and that can be done in in the background. So um, interesting. Yeah, like the 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 general procedure indeed is trying to come up with algorithms or select the algorithms that mm-hmm. are fast in sort of like the one-time preparation thing and yeah. then move the required data to the GPU and, and let that handle the, the final like final output rendering step with everything else prepared. Yeah, because so this sounds like something you pre-compute as a kind of like as a property of the image. Um, so that you could do it on load and then just have the data structure there that remains consist- consistent even after applying edits, yeah, presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The data structure indeed cool. doesn't change. It's it's like part of the input, you could say, part of the... That's it's Actually, it's what you said, like you need some statistics of the image. Well, the statistics ah, okay. are a very, very specific type of statistic, you could say, like it's a, it's a three-dimensional data structure uh, called the bilateral grid. And... Yeah, as far as I know, I don't think that uh, Lightroom, for example, uses it. Uh, yeah. They they use a different approach. It's what they use is called the uh, the stack of local Laplacians. Um, but like upon hmm. inspection, I didn't feel like this was an algorithm that was going to be able to implement fast. That algorithm seemed like I it see. was never going to be fast. So I interesting. So I, never considered implementing it so i went i kept looking for other other approaches and then came on yeah that, the bilateral grid that's pretty interesting um so another thing speaking of performance that people can see if they go look at the silver node devlogs i don't know if you showed it in the first one i think maybe it was just in the second one um but you like the whole application is sort of running on top of this job system yep um and uh, it looks like presumably you're doing a bunch of stuff in parallel. I mean, when you boot up the application, you have to load in like, I don't know how many images, but they, they pop in pretty quickly. And I'm, I'm assuming these are not small pieces of data. Like they look like very detailed, very, um, probably very, I, I don't know, uh, like, I don't know anything about the, the format, but I would assume that the extension raw means they're like not compressed. Like they're, yeah. they're just giant pieces of data. So, so like um, the what you what you get if you buy a camera and you don't change the settings and you start making photos mm-hmm. that saves photos in, in yeah. jpeg which is of course heavily compressed but right. the sensor itself has uh a lot more bit depth than that can be stored in a jpeg 
Interesting. And uh, like, I think my camera, for example, uh, has 14 bits of color depth per channel. Um, and so okay. like, interesting. The, the you can put your camera in in raw, and then it saves all of the sensor data that was available when you when you click the button. And those files, for at least for my camera, are around 24 megabytes per photo. So indeed, it's quite a bit larger than what yeah. you would expect from a JPEG. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, so so this is like storing like, um, yeah, you said like all the data from the sensor, meaning this is not within like pixel values or anything like that. Like this is high, dy high dynamic range, like capturing the actual light being processed by the camera. Yeah, the, so actually not being processed that's the thing it's raw it's unprocessed okay, camera fair enough. data yeah. so like for example one of the first sense. things yeah. that a camera would do if you would like to save it in jpeg is to um, <clears throat> apply a demosaicing algorithm because your camera sensor can only see monochromic light and like uh, a way to add color to your photos is to apply a filter across the um the camera sensor and that filter filters out uh, alternatingly red light, blue light, green light. And then like you have a grid of only red pixels, only blue pixels and only green pixels. And then like you need right. to interpolate back the, the missing values such that you have the R, G and B values for every pixel instead of only having one of the three. Interesting. And so like a raw that, file that's... does not have this interpolated values. That's up to you when you when you want to process the raw file. Oh, interesting. Because if you don't do the interpolation <clears throat> and you just have this red, green, and blue value stored like per pixel, it would be like extremely noisy. Yeah, it would look like okay. a mosaic. That's why they call it like it's a it's a right. mosaicing algorithm. Right, that makes sense. That's pretty interesting. The filter name is called Bayer. It's a Bayer Bayer. I don't know the pronunciation. A Bayer Bayer filter. So an alternative name okay. is debayering. Yeah. I see. Okay. And that's like the first step to, like, processing one of these images, presumably on the software side. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like this is this something that can be done in parallel pretty easily like is this something that silvernode just like yeah this, this is a like... this is a thing that's been done in parallel um but cool. one of the one of the real workhorses in in the silvernode uh like raw processing engine is halide i don't know if you have ever heard of halide no i haven't yeah halide is um a project i think the guys and girls i don't know i think guys actually adam and some other person mm -hmm. is a work, working university and they have uh, designed a programming language that is actually embedded in c plus plus oh and interesting so like halide is a thing that allows you to describe an algorithm functionally so like you describe the input output relationship between mm -hmm. yeah whatever you want to do and then yeah. separate from that, like completely orthogonal to defining how the algorithm should behave, you can define in what order the data should be processed. And like having the flexibility huh. to change the order of the processing uh, gives you the ability to optimize for like cache, uh, cache hits and uh, vectorization stuff to like use vectorized instructions to parallelize across threads 
um, even move the entire process to the GPU, uh, define the block size, like these kind of things. It's a very, very, very interesting project. It's uh, done a ton of work for me in terms of the algorithms because otherwise you would be programming and programming these algorithms and then you yeah. would first of all make a a, a ton of mistakes and yeah. then finally once you have figured out all of the mistakes it would still be slow so unlike hellite right. you don't have to change anything of the definition of the algorithm just like the execution order there's just fiddling around with some numbers and and testing what works fastest and the uh, halide backend is is LLVM, so like you get very optimized code in the end. I see. Okay, and this is like so halide is capable of moving like transformations, like presumably certain algorithms and effects to the GPU um, as well. So yeah. that can do. That. I see. So so if somebody's in Silvernode, like editing one of the sliders or something, that will prepare like a halide. Uh, no like a piece of code no not for, not okay. in silvernode because one of the requirements that i okay. i had for silvernode is that it should run on pretty much any hardware i and, see interesting and adjusting sliders as i mentioned earlier like today at least it's still a fully per pixel effect which is implemented as a fragment shader on the gpu i see okay um because the halide backend for gpus is actually like cuda or opencl uh, oh, so I and see. that is a real hardware requirement that d- not everybody can fulfill. So I didn't want that. I see. Maybe yeah. at some point, uh, like dynamically checking at runtime if you have a CUDA enabled GPU uh, would be a thing. But like that's the beauty of Halite. Like you can define the algorithm, just compile it for CPU with vector instructions, blah blah blah, yeah. all of these fancy features. And like make a second mm-hmm. version of the same exact algorithm for a GPU, and then like dynamically switch between them. I see. Interesting. So Hellite is uh, presumably controlling some of the tasks within Silvernode, like maybe the maybe this denoising process or this debayering. The debayering uh, is implemented uh, with Hellite. Um, okay. There, there are quite some others, um, like for example. Some of the AI uh, algorithms that we're using uh, need input, for example, in a logarithmic space or in a monochromatic space. And then like, it would be stupid to move all of the pixel data to the GPU, let the GPU calculate the logarithm and then move it back to the CPU memory. Right, um, yeah. Because then you're, you're using this, the GPU for a very, very small task and you're right. basically waiting for IO. So yeah. Halite has a vectorizable v- v- uh, equivalent of the logarithm logarithm function. Uh, so like I think it can do up to four or eight floats at a time using vector instructions, which makes it an excellent thing to do on a CPU if it's not too much data. Um, these kind okay. of tricks, like you would never be able to write a logarithmic thing yourself with vectorization across four or eight pixels at a time. But Halide does it for you and, and the result is really amazing. Yeah. Wow, okay. Wait, so uh, maybe I misheard, but did you say like AI, like artificial intelligence in Silvernode? Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the big like goals okay. we have in mind for, for Silvernode. Yeah. To like take away yeah, a lot of the repetition in, in post-processing of photos. Right. 
Yeah, because I know you were um, in the devlogs. You mentioned this like auto editing ambition. Is that like the same kind of problem that you're yeah, feel, yeah, like yeah. the yeah? You, gotcha. Interesting. Um, like there, there what, are what a ton of like? of auto edit algorithms out there, and yeah, I don't know. I've never felt satisfied with any of them. Um, there is yeah. Skylum. That seems very interesting. I've seen some videos recently. Um, I was considering okay. considering buying it. But then I saw that they didn't have a Linux built available. Then I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. spend my money on rebooting to Windows. <laughs> um, but that looked good. And other than that, I haven't seen any like convincingly good auto edit slash AI type of things for photography post-processing. And Interesting. I don't know if I will be able to like get to a point where I'm like confident, like this is going to work every time perfect for each photo but at yeah. least if it gets you way closer to a beginning point that is already very valuable and i think i've right. proven in the past with like the previous version of silver note because yes this is the second version we restarted the previous version okay. yeah. had a, a way more advanced like auto edit system in it already and that worked really well i was very happy with the result there hmm okay so like was that, that is that was coming all... back definitely. Cool. Okay. And in the first version of Silvernode, it was all AI driven. No, there was there was very little AI. Well, like I mean, oh, okay. AI is a buzzword, of course. AI. Right. Yeah. Like literally, artificial intelligence. If you wrote ten lines of code that do some math that calculate what exposure you should use for your picture, then that is an artificial intelligence setting the exposure for you. <laughs> But it has nothing to do right. with machine learning of, of neural networks or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're trying to, at least in the beginning, try to keep things as simple as possible um, because mm -hmm. you can get a very long way with, with simple statistics and good regression. Right. Interesting. Yeah, because it seems like Silvernode really, like it's it seems like there's a lot of care put into allowing the user to... Um, like have this very high level view of what's happening with like their entire set like 100 photos or whatever and being able to apply edits in this like at a very high level and have being able to do things that would otherwise be extremely repetitive uh, but also being able to zoom in and take really fine-grained control yeah uh, when that's appropriate yeah. Um, yeah which um, it seems like the machine learning stuff would come in especially handy when you're in the zoomed out view mm -hmm. and you kind of want to just like manage all of these crazy edits um, across like hundred different photos or whatever yeah yeah i think that's that's indeed one of the goals of, of silvernote like i envisioned like there i've put a lot of thought in like what do you actually want from a photo editing application at this point and i think that yeah having an ai thing that helps you edit photos and can additionally tell you how confident it was of what job it did you can go to a a sort of view where it sorts the photos according to confidence and like you can check out the ones that it wasn't confident of yeah and probably will spend some time there and then through the others you cruise through them at a very high speed just checking them and then like yeah they indeed look good because uh, the ai was very confident of what it did right so like trying to to re-envision reinvent some of those those workflow things that are 
like there are there are tons of applications that all try to follow the same like workflow you import your photos you start selecting right. them you go through them one by one whatever it's very slow and repetitive and and it's like it's really defined in phases i feel like like phase one import yeah. phase two select phase three edit, sort of like this thing right whereas i want to yeah. make sure that these things blend more together and like get you to the end result faster because i don't feel like there's an exact need to separate those phases out yeah that's pretty interesting well really i would think it's like more of like a cycle like instead of going through these different phases presumably the user is like cycling in and out of these phases all the time mm -hmm. and they constantly want to like go up see how everything looks and like go down to a very close like zoomed in level mm -hmm. do some things pop back out like um, yeah, yeah. That's that seems like a really judicious uh, like uh, application um, of like machine learning, where it's like machine learning is useful, but it's not perfect. But we'll tell you when it thinks it's not being perfect, so that you can you know you, you're the human, you can you can uh, you know really decide yep. what's best for your own photos. So that's really good. Yeah, and, and the nice thing um, is like those machine learning type of algorithms or 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 techniques exist. Like you can have. There are tons of techniques that can tell you how confident something was um, when it did something. So that is right. definitely something I want to explore more in depth uh, once I get there. But right now we're still working on like the fundamentals and the AI is for later. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Well, the fundamentals are looking really good already. Um, well, yeah, uh, like... Uh, as you said, you're not a photographer, but like um, there was one... Yeah. one person the one who is uh working on this software uh software rendering like one of the projects mm -hmm. that recently joined it had like an abbreviation oh, yeah. of like five letters or something what yeah i always forget the let me well let me just make sure I... or something dawa dawudos dawudos is his name uh he started commenting um, on um on on the silvernode devlog uh, blog post on the handmade network yeah and like he was um he clearly had like a very critical eye to in terms of what the effects were doing to the photos and he was like yeah this clearly looks fake whereas i was like really do you think so so like i'm not really <laughs> sure on how to assess the quality then anymore of the effects if people like that person can really see the difference between like ah you're doing something that is definitely breaking the laws of physics and hence making it look <laughs> fake um, interesting yes i don't know why did i sidetrack into this um ah yeah, yeah you said that the fundamentals were good and then i'm like thinking yeah but they still need a ton of work um to like get the effects really really nice and that's also why yeah. i got a uh, more diverse photo set because I was testing it on uh, like two or three photo sets of my own. I see. And and like yeah, having having a more di more diverse photo set easily makes you encounter bugs or or problems with some of the effects that otherwise weren't visible in the photos you were constantly testing with. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I certainly don't have an eye for like. Um... I think I have a little bit of an eye, but not definitely a photographer's eye when it comes to things like this photo looks like over-processed in this weird way or something like that. Um, like uh, applying the edits in the devlogs when you guys were like applying the edits to these 
photos, I, I was just like, that looks so much better than the original data that came in. Mm-hmm. So that, that looks like super good. Um, yeah. And to me, that's but, as well the case, but like, apparently there is room for criticism and I should try to like get to, to figure out better what he was or she was referring to. Yeah. Well, I, um, I am curious. So you're a photographer, obviously, but, um, you're only one photographer, do you do you send out builds to like other photographers and like have them try out the the like editing experience and see if they can achieve the looks that they want? I I did that. Well, actually, we did that um, with the previous uh, version of Silvernote before the rewrite. We sent it gotcha. out to a couple of like photography friends, people I knew, mm-hmm. um, and they were all very very enthusiastic enthusiastic about it enthusiastic about it um of course yeah it it was a very rudimentary program very unfinished program so like of course there was a lot of feedback like this is missing this is missing whatever and then yeah i started thinking like okay i am a photographer i i know the struggles of what it is to work with other software i first want to try to like get silver node up to a point where i feel like it at least serves what I would expect from it, right? And then and then send it out to other people. Of course, um, sending it out to other people is not a problem if you know them and you're like, yeah, yeah they they can understand that it's right. a work in progress. Because I'm kind of scared that if you send them too early built to someone who doesn't really know you personally. Yeah, you might yep. not be able to convince them to try it again later if they have a bad first experience right. because they're missing feature X or feature Y. Right, it's 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 like a hard balance between um, like getting useful beta feedback versus like a marketing problem yeah. where you want people to try this cool new thing. Um, it, yeah, definitely, I definitely understand that. Um, I've been, I've, I'm always nervous to like send out builds to people because I'm always like, oh, there's like a million things that I can't get to right now. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, totally understand that. Um, yeah. So, um, going back to the job system, mm-hmm. um, it seems like, so that's like just to organize all of the CPU work, obviously, yeah. presumably like, and presumably there's like a driver thread or something that's like sending work to the GPU or, um, ah, yes, there is something the, like, like that. the main thread. Cool. Is I yeah. I don't really know. I'm so my uh, uh the thing I'm using for the GPU abstraction mm-hmm. is BGFX. I always have trouble pronouncing. Oh, BGFX. G versus J. BGFX. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. And I really really like it. Uh, but they apparently have an an option to like run bgfx in multi-threaded mode so then oh, if like you software yeah like it's an abstraction in the software and then like depending on which uh graphics backend it uses there's an explicit yeah. synchronization step or otherwise it goes more implicit i don't know the details of it uh hmm, because I've, i'm only used to uh writing uh opengl i've never used yeah. any other graphics backend Definitely not one of right. the newer ones where where you don't have a like master thread or a driver thread. Right. So I don't know, but apparently it should be possible. But uh, I don't feel the need for it right now, at least. Like, 
all of the work that is CPU is being offloaded to one of the worker threads. And then like, if you have mm -hmm. a GPU enabled job, you just squeeze that in between the rendering of the interface and it works really well because all of the GPU I jobs see. are yeah. very short actually. So there's no real problem here for, at least for, for this application. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I guess like the things that you have to, like the actual GPU rendering work in terms of um, putting stuff on the screen for the user to interact with is like, you know, some UI, um, at least one obviously complicated image, which is probably the, I would assume that's the heaviest part, but I don't know. Well, in terms um, of the UI, the image is, is pre-rendered. Right. Uh, like it's, a, it's, oh, it's I see. it goes to a frame buffer and then you render the resulting texture just as part of the UI. Oh, I see. So like... Gotcha. Scrolling yeah. through so the menus. Super fast. Yeah. So, well, the internet is kind of dropping away. Uh, scrolling through oh. the menus doesn't re-render the image the entire time. Like the raw processing right. pipeline is not executed if you're just navigating the interface. I um, see. It's only if you're, yeah. you're so you've... actually manipulating the sliders. I see. So then you, like, every time an edit occurs to the photo, you, like, kind of... Uh, cache a like an actual uh, like a texture to sample from whenever you want to render this thing presumably yeah and then um yeah that makes sense that's yeah that sounds and that, so is all of the heaviest work on the gpu going to be those like editing jobs or are those like pretty quick to like uh, those are definitely the heaviest but they are quick like the the heaviest yeah. job that happens on gpu right now is when you export a photo to a jpeg because then you have to render it out okay. at full resolution instead of whatever your screen size is. Um, right. And and that yeah. can like take some time noticeably. Yeah. Like a workaround that I have in mind for this is like dividing up the, the image in a couple of blocks and then doing it in like block by block, allowing the interface to be re-rendered if needed in between those blocks in between the, the blocks of the rendering process of the full res image. Yeah, that makes sense. But that I guess that's not, that's, yet. yeah, that, that, that seems like a pretty good position to be in too, because, you know, exporting to JPEG is presumably not a common operation for the user. Um, yeah, that's also one uh, of those things. <laughs> let, yeah. let, let me, <laughs> let me briefly explain here what's going on. Like, in most okay. in most editing software, you import your photos, you spend a ton of work editing them, and then in the mm -hmm. end, you're like, I'm done. This is it. And then you select all your photos, go through some menus, and hit export. And then you have to yeah. wait like half an hour, an hour, depending on how fast and how many photos what? you have. And no then, way. And then you're like, why are you exporting the photos at the point that I asked you to? And not while they were already loaded in memory, decoded, fully demosaiced, fully processed. You could have just saved the file when I was there. Uh, so that's one of the oh. tricks that we're doing. Like uh, when you're going through the photos, we have like this feature that you can optionally enable, which is auto export. And it just oh. continuously exports the latest version of the photo you had. And then like, if you're saying I'm done, then the photos are there and you don't need to wait that additional half an hour, whatever, for for it to go through the photos one by one again. 
I see. So even me, like thinking about the way this all works, I was like, I jumped to the like click the export button, but even that is like not the best possible thing because I mean, thirty minutes sounds crazy to me. I didn't even. I, I thought when you said like noticeable amount of time, I thought I was thinking like, oh, it takes like half a second when you click the export button or something. No, <laughs> no, that would so, that would be if you select like your five hundred photos that you want to export and then it goes through them one by one. Then that would take half oh. an hour if you have like your, the full wedding day and you want to export it right yeah um is it do you presumably you can do that all in parallel like set uh have a job for each like image being exported or whatever right that becomes difficult because of course you have okay. a physical machine with a limited amount of memory and only one gpu typically right so like massively starting to parallelize these things does not really pay off anymore at a certain uh, point um, okay. because like, yeah, you can only do so much things with, with the hardware. Um, yeah. but it's true. Of course you can paralyze it if you take good care of the amount of resources available and, and, and figure out a good amount of things you do in parallel. Yeah. Uh, then you can get away with it. Like, for example, one of the things that, uh, that was an issue at some point in the code of Silverno was that you open a folder with let's say 500 photos and then it yeah. starts loading those photos but you have to make sure to generate the thumbnails it starts loading those photos to generate the thumbnails i see but then yeah. you have to make sure that um that you don't start a hundred photos at the same time because like yeah you won't be able to oh. keep in memory all of those hundred photos if you launch them in parallel so like even so the job system the job system picks a new job available that is ready to run and then every photo is ready to run because like the first step is just load the file in memory but you yeah. have to make sure that you cap the amount of concurrent photos being processed like make sure that it right. first finishes one photo before it, it goes to the next one for example although you're you're trying to parallelize things so it's like a a hybrid form, you could say, between parallel and serial. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess you have like a fixed upper bound of of worker threads that you are able to distribute. And if all of them are busy, then you just say, okay, well, all the jobs in the queue have to wait because we're not going to tax the system more um, because that'll just result in diminishing returns and probably a net loss at, yeah. in the end. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. So that is a... That makes There's sense. a maximum number of photos being loaded in parallel and a maximum number of um, worker threads that are currently working. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you like split up the threads by like associated tasks? Like, do you have no. like these four threads are okay? No, gotcha. That doesn't, I mean, I don't know if there would be a good reason to do that. Um, I yeah. think it would make sense to like, uh, the task is associated with the same photo to keep it on the same thread in that way like you might right. benefit from some l1 or l2 caching hits but then again you're like dealing with 25 yeah. megabytes of data so i don't think it actually works and it doesn't really uh, hurt yeah. to change threads here because like yeah no photo fits in 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 the l1 or l2 cache that doesn't make sense yeah makes sense that's pretty interesting yeah um, so yeah, something that you briefly mentioned during, uh, taking me through all of that was, um, 
the like thinking about thinking deeply about the way that you know like the actual kind of um tools that you want as a photographer um and like deeply considering the th- the the tools that you would like available to you as somebody editing a photo um versus like every time that's always like a challenge for anybody i guess because we already have so many examples of existing tools um what what is your like mental process there like do you just have to like throw out the lightroom model out of your head and just be like okay i just need to think about uh if i had a perfect program like sent down from heaven that like edited these photos um is that like what what is the mental process there because that's a challenge and i'm sure it'd be useful for it, it it'll be useful for me hopefully um and for hopefully everybody else also to hear what your yeah that's an uh like approaches there interesting question how do how do we think about it i think for for myself like mm-hmm. i think most of the considerations or the decision making or the thought process is pushed or driven by frustrations actually like using other software is frustrating for a couple of reasons like lightroom doesn't do this well uh raw therapy doesn't do this well or or it's slow there or whatever like they're like and if, if you have taken over a hundred thousand photos in your life and and processed them through one of these applications like you really right. know what what is bothering at least yourself um i see yeah and like because because the the whole process is very repetitive of course like the the thing that mm. i found myself doing the most when post-processing photos that i shot was just two things like adjusting the white yeah. balance adjusting the exposure right. and that's like touching three sliders and if you manage to like take pretty <laughs> consistent photos uh, across a shoot yeah. across a day whatever then like you can get away with a preset you you throw a preset on it and the only thing that you need to adjust is the exposure and the white balance in order for it to create a good starting point for the preset to do the rest like i see like yeah if your photos are are lightwise <clears throat> consistent enough presets do a great job and the only thing you do is readjust the the starting point for the preset and then i was like why am i doing this by hand why am i <laughs> spending hours and hours of time waiting for my throttle gpu thermal throttle right. gpu uh, cpu to be <laughs> for for these edits to appear on screen whereas the only thing i'm doing is fixing the exposure like uh, yeah right. back in back when i was being frustrated with that it was probably five years ago so then we were okay. at 2015 and like you're thinking it's 2015 we shouldn't be doing this by hand and now we're 2020 right. and that yeah. argument has only gotten bigger yeah so that indeed was for me one of the most um driving things to like reconsider some of the things that are already established in the other applications because like every tutorial right. you see online of people uh like showing you how to use program x or program y like they go through yeah. it and it's so slow like they never consider the speed of the workflow. Very people consider the speed <laughs> of the workflow. They're just teaching you the sliders yeah. and like, look, I'm going to edit this photo and they're going through it and it's super slow, super slow, super slow. They go to the next photo of the same album. And then right. again, it's equally slow. And you're like thinking, <laughs> how do you not get frustrated with yourself if you're taking such a long time for, for doing all of this? 
Right. Um, it seems like the kind of work that should totally be able to be done by a computer. Exactly. Like exactly. open up a photo, wait probably 10 seconds for it to load or something, touch the three sliders, hit the button to do the preset, load the next photo, wait 10 seconds. Like <laughs> it's just like very repetitive it sounds like yeah and then waiting 10 seconds indeed is is horrible 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 yeah for sure it's like closing um i guess you you use linux um but the the program that i always think about is visual studio if i'm on windows like doing debugging and i close visual studio by accident i'm always like ah but now i have to open it back up again Mm -hmm. and that's like this huge process to keep debugging yeah yeah yeah. i saw a rant of casey i think going about this I I never yeah. used Visual Studio besides like trying to get a working Windows build for one of the projects I'm working on. Like all of yeah. my development has always been in in uh, Linux or or macOS. And right. then I saw his video explaining like demonstrating all of the problems with Visual Studio and I was amazed like why is this yeah. the most popular thing? I think it's the most popular thing for Windows developers. So uh, yeah, I definitely I would definitely think so. Um that's been my experience at least, but I haven't taken stats or anything, obviously, but yeah, um, uh, yeah that's, um, it's pretty amazing. I am pretty excited about uh, like Remedy BG for this reason. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all, it looks like an interesting project, like with the with good mindset yeah. written. Uh, right. Yeah. Going back to like th- your question of like, how do you get to design these things or like decide on right. what you want and what you don't want? The yeah. second biggest thing for me was being uh, a Vim user for many years. Like I, I see. I use Vim all the time everywhere. I have Vim plugins for like all of the applications you can think of to get as yeah. most done with the keyboard as possible. Yeah. And then and then most of these photos editing applications have like zero or close to zero keyboard efficiency. Uh, enabled in them Uh, like we have we have 26 letters 10 more number things and a bunch of additional modifier keys and and like functioning buttons whatever there's so many keys to get stuff done on the keyboard and like yeah lightroom for example you hit g to go back to the grid you hit d to go to develop and then the arrows which are like 20 centimeters further than that for the next photo (laughs) And then you want to yeah. paste the preset you're having, you're currently working with, and you have to go again to the other side of the keyboard to hit Control Shift V. Like you're constantly right. moving your left hand over the keyboard, and the right hand yeah. is aiming for sliders because the sliders in most of these applications <laughs> are super tiny. Like you really like need to aim for them. And yeah. Then, like try to grab and drag them around. Like there are so many keys on the keyboard. Let's try to make better yeah. use of them. Right. Well, it's uh, it kind of speaks to... This is like kind of a weird parallel to draw, probably. This, this is just how I think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, using the machine properly, like when, when people, especially in the handmade community, think about that, it's always about my machine has so many gigabytes of memory, it's okay to like use that and like use the machine as it was intended to be used. Um and I actually see like keys on a keyboard as the same way. Like they, they are a resource. They're a fixed resource that we can allocate out to different things. Yep. So just doing everything by mouse is almost like not allocating any memory. Um, mm. Or it's like allocating like a tiny little fraction of memory and saying, yeah, I yeah, have yeah. to work within this little space when really you have like a ton of stuff that you could be using. Yeah. Being that I was such a hardcore Vim user 
like fan. I uh, yeah. I started implementing these Vim bindings in Silvernode and I was very happy yeah. with them in the beginning because there were like only two or three sliders that were being manipulated. But then like yeah. right now they're probably more than 10 sliders and like you cannot strategically assign all of the sliders a button it's it's become too right. hard to like make it intuitive and make everything accessible through the keyboard right um so i'm not sure yet where that will go in terms of like yeah. what would be able to keep up with with having nice vim bindings for everything because now yeah. I find myself a lot with like one hand on the keyboard and one hand on the mouse to like adjust the sliders right. that are not having key bindings associated with them. Right. Um, and that's, I think, where there is a lot of potential for the Blender-inspired uh, input method. Okay, yeah. Do you know Blender? Like the 3D software application? Yeah. I So I'm not like well-versed in the controls. I've used it in the past, mm -hmm. but I'm not like... You, if you asked me the key binding to do whatever, I couldn't tell you because it's been so long. But Yeah, yeah. But I think the design goals of, of the Blender input method is like have mm -hmm. have the left hand on the keyboard and the right hand on the mouse and like try to right. make things as orthogonal as possible between your left and yeah. right hand such that the combination of left and right gives a lot of possibilities. Right. Um, so like you, you enter... For example, in Blender, you want to move something that is uh, grabbing it. So you hit the mm -hmm. G button. And then with the mouse, you move it around. And then you only need one button to move it in all of the three coordinates available. And so in that way, it's orthogonal. That was what I was getting at. Right. Well, there's definitely, I think, um, like there's value in the mouse for sure. Uh, I think that it's a pretty interesting philosophy to say like we're going to think about which of the actions in our program are like these non-discrete i mean it is always discrete because it's a computer but you know this very like there's a very large number of possible states it needs a lot of precision um that mm -hmm. kind of thing we're going to dedicate that to the right hand and then to the left hand we're going to dedicate these like discrete uh smaller set of actions but that you would never want to do with a mouse um i think it's kind of an interesting uh like way to approach well, it. The, the way it's right now is as long as you hit the button, the slider is going and then you release the key uh, and the slider, yeah. the slider stops at the same time. And like the thing I've been doing is just readjust the, the speed with which the slider goes upon pressing a key. And I see. And I'm very happy with that result, like how it feels, how it operates. That's very nice. But it's just yeah. like impossible to like come up with seemingly okay key bindings for every slider or like for example the curve we don't have to talk about right. all the sliders if you want to edit the curve you can't really edit a curve with a keyboard without going back to arrow keys in a terminal I type see. of setting that is ridiculous so you need a mouse there yeah so i think right. the blender bindings will actually be the most useful one yeah, I I really wonder. This is kind of a tangent, but I I wonder how much um, the hardware is limiting us because Handmade Network is all about software. Obviously, uh, I mean not totally about software, but it's you know mo mostly everybody is doing software work, mm -hmm. and I really wonder how much the traditional mouse and keyboard are 
uh, like constraining us. Like I wonder if for sliders, for example, if you have one focused in the UI, if there were like two like analog uh, buttons more or less that can control the speed depending on the pressure, stuff like that. I just w- I wonder how much that could actually help, but it doesn't matter because we're stuck on keyboard and mouse. But <laughs> yeah, no, like a lot of photographers. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if it's a lot, but there are at least products out there that like try to give you real analog dials that interoperate with right. with Lightroom or Photoshop or like similar applications. Yeah. I've seen that for video editing software. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I have a friend who does a bunch of video editing. He has this like whole setup where there's all these knobs, and um, it seems like kind of awesome uh, to kind of have a interface dedicated, like a physical interface dedicated to what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely some. I think it's totally true that there could just be a lot of work done there. It seems. Um, I I tried. Like one of the things before I started Silvernode and I was trying to speed up my workflow, I uh, was trying to get Lightroom to work with a Xbox controller. Um, that was a very, very oh. hacky setup. I got it working in the end. Um, okay. But it didn't make me feel faster. And that was, I think, partially because of how slow Lightroom on its own was. Um <laughs> right. But like as as I have now total control over the entire code base of Silvernode, um, mm-hmm. I also added the Xbox controller support, just to like toy around and see what is interesting, what works, and what doesn't. It's not something that I'm actively working on, uh, but it's there, yeah. and and I feel like it could go somewhere. Um, hmm. Like leaning back, sitting in your couch, for example, and editing photos on a big screen. Yeah, is maybe something that people will want to do. I mean, I tried it and I did it um, and I thought it was interesting, but not really faster in any way. Right. Because in the end, that's what matters to me, like workflow speed. Uh, I don't really care about the input method as long as it gets the job done. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about that too before. Like I kind of really, there's something very nice about... um, uh, being able to like lean back on it, like I think about this when I'm playing, like if I ever play a PC game versus sit on the couch and play like an old mm-hmm. Nintendo game or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something like much more like relaxing about sitting on a couch uh, and like leaning back using like this little controller that you can just sit in your lap uh, versus like having to sit up at this desk like constantly engaging with with the with the interface yeah. um, in the like, I, I, in other words, I'm lazy and I would really like to prefer to like sit on a couch if I, if I yeah. could. And I um, think, I think personally that that is something that would become possible once, uh, yeah. the, the presets and auto edit stuff is on point and that like right. you as an end user only have to do very few adjustments after the auto edits did its thing. Then I right. think you can get away with a controller, lean back, go cruise through the photos and make tiny adjustments and you don't need like the full interface to fix it yeah for sure one of the other things that i i really was excited about but is more of a gimmick is like instead of having one photo open within the Mm -hmm. interface like have a special multiplayer kind of mode where for example two or four photos are visible at the same time like in a in a in a table in a grid and then, yeah. like, just connect four controllers and let a group of four people cruise through the photos, and like they all have their 
photo they are working on. And like once they're done, Interesting. just hit like, I'm done. And you get the next photo from the queue. I thought that that was an interesting wow. idea. But like, of course, how many people yeah. are going to use that? Is it worth the effort? Probably not. But it was really something right. that sparked my mind. Yeah, well, I think um, I don't really know much about the photography industry. I, when I think of a photographer, I think of an individual. Yeah. But maybe if they're like, I don't know if they're like photography firms or something, but maybe if they all like get together, sit, sit at a table and like figure out how to edit. Um, I think it's a, something like, given photo set very well. Yeah, I think it's something that happens in the wedding photography industry. Uh, oh, okay. Because like weddings are, are this one special important day and then like, Sometimes right. you feel more confident if there's a secondary photographer that like gets at the, at the other side of the room to like get the photos from, from that angle. Because otherwise yeah. you as the single photographer are running around trying to get the good shots and like also maintaining yeah. variation in your photo shoot. Because otherwise, like if you don't move and you're like, I'm good here, then all of the photos are from the same angle. So you need to move, but then you're losing time. So yeah. there it could happen that multiple photographers are working together at the same time. But then yeah, at least then the question becomes like when they get home, do they cooperate in the editing as well? I wouldn't know. Right. I don't have any experience there and I don't know anybody who yeah. does that. So maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, I guess that makes sense because I, I I've always thought of uh, like wedding photography as presumably being an extremely stressful job for a photographer where you're having to catch these moments and if you miss them then you miss them basically yep. like you can't rewind or anything can't go back to the same spot yeah it so. is really um stressful in that sense like i yeah. once i once i think it was the very very first wedding i did uh, i accidentally like hit the quality button on my camera and then like okay. instead of the iso button because they're right above each other at, a, at my nikon i see camera and then like you're turning the yeah. wheel to cycle through the iso but you're not paying attention to like what does the display exactly tell me you're just like oh, i, I want to lower the iso bit you do that because it's muscle memory but apparently yeah. i was uh, dialing through the quality uh setting and so i switched from raw <laughs> to jpeg which is like compressing oh. it's, it's deleting it's going from a 24 megabyte raw file of, of pure data to to like a jpeg compressed one megabyte file right. that was a big <laughs> screw up but i luckily found out like i think 20 minutes after i screwed up so like not the entire day was gotcha ruined. but indeed yeah. that is that is uh, stressful yeah like because yeah, for sure because it's one moment like there, there are these key right. moments at a wedding and like they don't take very long it's some of them are like two seconds five seconds and then they're gone and you really need to make sure you have those right yeah that definitely makes sense one of one of the things yeah. that is also very like bug or like error prone is just misfocusing you're like in one of those important moments you're trying to be quick but you miss right. the focus and then like how oh, the yeah. shot is ruined yeah but this is one of the more like uh, ambitious things I want to try for Silvernote at some point is like deconvolutions. It's a uh, so oh. like a convolution is the mathematical like description of what it is to apply a blur through a photo. Mm -hmm. And like a deconvolution is the inverse problem. Like here is a blurred photo. Try to undo the blur. 
Wow, interesting. And that is a field of research in academia that that has shown very uh, successful papers. Um, hmm. So like this really needs to be in a photo editing application, if you ask me. Right. Like, ah, the focus was yeah. a bit off. As long as it's not too bad, you can like correct it, make at least give it a sharper look. It might not be perfect, but it, but improve the photo in general. Right. Especially at like sizes that people are going to be often looking at it. I mean, you imagine a photo on like somebody's mantle or on the wall or something. It's not going to be huge. So even a like even just like a little sharpness probably contributes a lot like mm -hmm. compared to like the this blurry picture that you probably couldn't even send to the to the to the client um compared with something that's just like a little sharper that will look okay yeah, yeah, at, yeah. Uh, at smaller sizes so like there it, this is of course not to be confused with with the uh, uh sharpening filters you find in photoshop those are just like right those are yeah. actually just a convolution but like a weird type okay. of convolution that enhances edges uh, but it yeah. doesn't really remove a blur. So like this is a different type of operation. And it's I've tried, I've experimented right. with it and it works. Uh, so like I'm really excited to like see what we can do with this on, on those full resolution raw files in Silvernode. Yeah. Because yeah, some that's... people have, have lenses that are like optically not 100% good. And like hmm. uh, the, the idea... The, no, the ID of a lens is typically stored in like the metadata of the photo. So like you could try to calibrate your lens, like do, follow the procedure, whatever is needed to get the information of how, right. what, of what characteristics your lens has in terms of optical imperfections into Silvernode. Yeah. And then like Silvernode can see like, ah, this photo is shot with this lens. We'll apply the optical correction thing we, we know for this lens. So like yeah that's that's pretty interesting yeah i thought so too yeah. but like i'm nowhere near that this is just all ideas <laughs> floating around in right. my head that i want to try someday yeah yeah what's um what's these are like probably like pie in the sky things um i what are the next steps i guess for silver node um in terms of pushing it presumably towards uh like shipping uh test builds to people and and everything like that yeah, that's a good question. Um, what I think, I think finishing like the bare minimum of of effects uh, in terms of mm -hmm. raw processing, because for example, right now there's no uh, denoising yet, uh, and see. denoising typically is is a more expensive operation. Um, gotcha. So like that needs to be in there first. Uh, because otherwise it's quite useless if you're, well, Silvernode right now is quite useless if you're uh, in very low light situations. Like you wouldn't realize it, but Lightroom and all these other applications actually do a lot of um, denoising without asking you because they detect like, oh, this photo is very dark. It needs some denoising and it just does it without asking because it it knows that it's needed and it really is needed. And Silvernode doesn't do that yet. So like if you're, opening some of those low uh, low light images they're super noisy and the effects start to fall apart because uh the it's color noise mainly and like it shifts right. the hues around and it gets bad very quickly yeah so that is that is a definite and requirement and i think adding some more 
uh, like non-vim user interface abilities to it because right now most of the things are through uh, hitting colon and then like a comment bar pops up and then you can do stuff through right. there but like people probably will yeah. not be wanting to use that uh, so that I, I think is yeah. a, another key ingredient to like making it ready to send out to testers yeah and this this so this other denoising thing for darker photos that's like a completely that's like another layer of denoising upon the like the first denoising thing that has to happen to these raw files right i don't i'm not sure what you're saying like another layer you were describing how a raw photo doesn't even do like the basic de like debiring work of a photo so you have to do that in silver node mm -hmm. this is something like this is another thing that you have to do um like another step of denoising at some point or yeah, are the yeah, two yeah. That things needs, like that needs to be in in there in the pipeline somewhere um and like right now okay. i haven't done that much research yet like looking through at, at gotcha. academic paper, papers uh so i'm not sure like if it's going to be also translatable to a per pixel effect on the on the gpu or not unlikely yeah. i think of of my basic knowledge of denoising algorithms i think it's going to be a cpu side job which is going to add some time gotcha. to the pipeline um yeah but yeah it's indeed a very fundamental thing that needs to get somewhere in the pipeline at some point that isn't there yet. yeah is is this um is this like a something that could be applied as a property of the image like unless somebody wants to change how much denoising is happening i guess uh that couldn't really be but um it wouldn't necessarily have to change like all the time right i'm not sure what you're saying i think i think you're referring to like just knowing the exact amount of denoising that is required for a photo yeah like i i guess i don't know i don't have a mental model of how this looks in something like lightroom uh is there any like user control over how much denoising is actually applied to one of these darker grainy yeah, photos yeah, yeah. or Lightroom and like every photo raw processing application uh, that yeah. has denoising has has some sliders that let you control some of the denoising parameters. I see. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind yeah. of a kind of a special case in terms of uh, these like I guess it's one of the harder jobs to do in parallel um, in real time. Yes. Yes. That's, yes. Seems indeed. like a interesting problem because like one of those things that make it harder um mm -hmm. to deal with this is that our eyes are way more sensitive to low light than to bright regions in a photo yeah um and like if you look at a dark photo you will see that whatever is actually like well lit by the few light sources available in the scene don't mm -hmm. look that noisy. It's just like in the very, very shadowy regions that you tend to see a lot of noise because our eyes are very good at look at, at detecting that. And and like coming up with an algorithm that does well that fixes that is like it need it's a very nonlinear thing because you wanna denoise more in shadowy regions than in than in highlighted regions. Right. And like one of the things that you could consider is using a logarithmic space then, for example, to apply your denoising tricks in. But hmm. then the problem is that the noise is actually additive. It's linear. So you could model the noise as additive white noise. Interesting. Additive white Gaussian noise. Yeah. And then 
and then once you get very close to zero, like all sorts of division by zero problems start showing up because of the noise. Uh, and that makes it that makes it hard and like you need to put a lot of thought into the selection of the algorithms and like the fact that you're dealing with raw files and not with some JPEGs and you actually want to be able to post-process after the denoising process. Like there's a great amount of detail that needs to remain after applying the denoising step. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, sounds like um sounds like a pretty good roadmap. I mean, it's already looking to me like when I look at it, it looks really awesome. So it uh, seems like a pretty exciting project. Um, uh, do you have anything else that you're working on right now that you want to share about? Um, I know you said like you were working on a couple different projects and I know you're doing uh, like PhD work. Do you want to talk about any of that? Oh, sure. I could uh, shed some light on what I'm doing for my uh, PhD. Um, I'm cool. working yeah. on uh, the the modeling and the compression of light fields and, and light field video. Which is like, okay. if you if you take a photo with a camera, like the the way you can relive that photo is by looking at it, like and that's it. There's no freedom yeah. uh, inherent uh, like associated with that photo. The photo you you can look at that scene from the point where the camera was at that time, right? And like what a light field tries to do is instead of using one camera, you like put a whole wall of cameras. So let's say a hundred cameras, ten by ten, for mm-hmm. example. And then make okay. all of those cameras take a photo at the same time. And then that information that you have, like those hundred photos instead of one photo, is actually a lot of information and enough information that allows you to freely move around and look around in and around the scene. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. And like you can you can combine this with a VR headset uh, because wow. both okay. both of your eyes have a specific. 3d point in space and like you can simulate what a virtual camera in the position of your left eye would have seen and what a virtual camera in the position of your right eye would have seen and then like synthesize those two images and present them to you on a vr headset and you like really have the sense of being there that's super interesting so this like light field idea you have a bunch of uh like data from all of these different cameras presumably like telling you something about some point in space and then the job of this like software work is to basically reproject that given some traditional camera uh, parameters like point yep. in space and projection and everything like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. pretty interesting. Yeah. So like the approach we're taking at our research lab is um, by trying to approximate the the camera data, like all of the mm-hmm. pixels the cameras captured by a continuous model. Uh, such that it actually becomes a function you can sample at any arbitrary point. And mm. then you can use that function to indeed like query the model at the specific points that you need to to synthesize a new image. Um, and the nice I thing see. about creating a continuous model is that now you can also interpolate between two original camera viewpoints. Like you can ask right. the model, like what would have been visible if you were in between those two original cameras, whereas you actually didn't have any data there to start with. Is that related at all? Like, I don't know how much you guys need to use something like, or like how much you have to know about the actual point in space of the geometry that you're capturing. Is that related? Do you have to do work to figure that information out? Yeah, uh, to but in a very minimal 
to a very minimal degree because the the okay. core philosophy of of our research is that uh, you actually don't need to know anything about the geometry of the scene. You just need to make wow, sure okay. that the model converges like like uh, like like into the right direction, uh, because you can't con create a continuous approximation by modeling each and every photo completely separately, and then that is of no use because then you cannot interpolate between the two views. Right. Just need to make sure that you guide the model into the right direction, and once it understands that actually those photos belong together and were part of the same scene uh then then like it converges into the right uh model parameters and then you get all of these amazing features for free uh, where you can interpolate and, and look and move around wow yeah that sounds and, pretty and, interesting and like giving it the push of going into the right direction is indeed done by uh having some depth information but I like see. after after you gave it the push you can discard all of that depth information. Uh, it doesn't actually use that anymore. And so oh, in I that see. sense, okay. it, it we hope that it won't suffer from all of those artifacts that are inherently related to having inaccurate right. depth maps. Yeah. Yeah, and I was also thinking, because um, I had done some work with, uh, uh, obviously, a completely different area, but just like uh, uh, reprojection in... Um, like if you're given like a, a frame from a game engine or something like that, doing some reprojection of that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are like interesting artifacts that happen when you reproject to an angle where there's no information yep. uh, from like behind an object that was, a, that uh, was, or like seeing, seeing into a spot that was previously occluded from the original frame, yep. for example. Yep. Um, I, I would assume there's still artifacts there in this case. I don't know though, yeah, like how like, it all works. So, so the, the model, uh, did never get any data indeed as you yeah. said like there's not no information there and so it doesn't know what to do and like the the gradient descent algorithm that tries to find the model parameters has never been steered to do anything with that particular area so like yeah. whatever is going to come out of the model is going to be uh, a bad approximation of what I actually would have been there the right. thing is however that the approximation is the model is in such a way designed that the approximation can actually be pretty good for free. Um, it, it's okay. an elegant approach to it. Uh, but of course, it's not going to be that go as good as if you had seen that original area. Right. How does, how does that work with... Um, so for example, if there's like a, 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 like a flare in an image, if there's like lens flare or a certain like light, I don't know the right terminology but um you know you see like a flare from the sun peeking through something mm -hmm. from one angle but not from another is that accounted for within the model or yeah the model um, will just try to fit that data and like if okay. if it was visible from that particular camera or or a few cameras mm -hmm. then then it will model that uh and it won't be visible anywhere else but like one of the things that our model should be good at uh, is like specularities, like highlights, reflected light. Oh, yeah. Because if you're using model geometry to like distort the, the thing you were doing, yeah, uh, I guess. So like you reproject your photo back into a point cloud and then reproject that point cloud back onto your image, onto the new virtual camera. Um, mm. And wait, where was I going? Uh, specularities, reflections. Ah, the speculars, yeah. Then if you're <laughs> using the model geometry, of course, 
moving to a new viewpoint, the geometry doesn't know that that thing that you saw, that light spot, was actually a specular and that that specular should move along right. with your position. Yeah. Um, but because we're using a continuous model that nicely interpolates between views, the specularity should move along with you very nicely. And that's what we can that. see happening. That does work. That's a very interesting approach that most other strategies of tackling light field synthesis cannot handle very well. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. And it sounds like Silvernode could even be useful for that too. If you have like this whole grid of 10 by 10 cameras, right? I don't know if this mm -hmm. is true, but maybe you can mm -hmm. edit them all the mm -hmm. same way, produce new environments um, or edited environments for people to explore a scene. Um, that is super fascinating. Um, yeah. That's pretty awesome. Well, at the, at the current time, we're... Uh focusing on synthesized scenes so like uh okay. virtual scenes yeah. rendered with blender like the ray tracing engine in blender cycles yeah uh and then then at least we know all of the parameters exactly all of the camera positions exactly like there's right. no uncertainties nowhere there are no lens imperfections no lens distortions whatever all these kinds of things so we can really focus on the fundamentals in this way right but indeed like once you move to real life actual photos with real life 100 cameras yeah then there is indeed gonna uh gonna be the need for a lot of calibration and like getting things set up in the correct way right that's that's pretty awesome uh that sounds like a definitely something that i should keep an eye on um i don't know if there's like a way that i can do that or if um i can like if there's any links uh, i can link to for that yeah uh the research group has a website it's it's id lab media Wait, no, probably, uh, yeah, like the order of URLs in internet is reversed. So it's probably media.idlab.ugent.be. So yeah, I'm working at Kent University. Okay. Yeah, that works. I will send you the link. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll go and put it in the uh, podcast description. Yep. Um, uh, oh, there it is. Uh, awesome. Yeah, well... Um, I guess uh, we should probably wrap up, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, if people want to check out the work you're doing there, uh, I'll put the link in the description. It's media.idlab.ugent.be. Uh, and if if uh, people want to check out the work on Silvernode, um, silvernode.io, I think. Yeah. Uh, Silvernode.handmade.network. Um any other links or anything that you well, want to like share? The, the thing that I'm uh, kind of like wanting to maintain as well as the YouTube channel. And uh, the, like gotcha. for the devlogs, they appear there. But like I always link to the to the devlogs on one of those other social media. So you should find them. I want to I want to awesome. say, though, that like if you have ideas for Silvernote or like visions. Yeah. Just write them somewhere. We'll figure we'll find them and like uh, consider it. Because awesome. like last last time on a YouTube video, a guy commented something and like I thought it was a really good idea and then implemented it straight away and it was in the next devlog. That's awesome. Yeah, that that's something you could really never get from something like Adobe uh, working on Lightroom. If you're a photographer, I imagine like it's probably so difficult to actually have any sort of uh, communication channel with uh, these application developers. So yeah, with like a small project that's trying to do things right, uh, seems like uh, there's a lot of room for a really good tool to be produced in the end that, that actually respects the users. So uh -huh. 
yeah that's the thing we're trying to like rethink the workflow of photo editing and like right now is yeah. the time to provide feedback and ideas if you yeah. if you have them awesome yeah well uh uh martin it's been great to have you on the show um i really appreciate the conversation um everybody should go check out silver node i really enjoy the devlogs and uh seeing what's going i i'm not a photographer either so it's just awesome to see like uh mm -hmm. very careful very uh very good software work um so yeah, th thanks, Martin. Uh, it's been great having you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.